You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Let me begin with a little story on Winston Churchill. No better way to begin a sermon. (laughs) Uh, Churchill, on one occasion, he suffered from depression. I don't know if you ever knew that, but he suffered really great bouts of depression. lived somewhat in his own kind of world and on one occasion was in a very foul mood. Uh, His wife was the only one that really could do anything with him and he had a servant that was there and he he just very quickly, very sharply uh, talked down to the servant that was there uh, to attend to him. And um, the servant just determined that he was going to respond in like manner. So he answered him very sharply as well. Well, Churchill did that famous swing around and put his hands on his hips and he was very sharp back to the servant and the servant was very sharp back to Churchill. And at that point, Churchill began to pout and he poked out his bottom lip as only Churchill could do. Uh, He poked out his bottom lip and he said, you have been very rude to me. And the servant said, you have been very rude to me. And Churchill said, yes, but I'm a great man. Now that just sets up what I want to do with us today. Um, Churchill was born of nobility. His uh, great ancestor uh, was uh, the Duke of Marlborough. And in fact, Churchill was born literally in Blenheim Palace, the palace that Queen Anne had built for the Duke of Marlborough as a thank you for saving the nation from the French. And uh, Churchill was born there. He was noble. He knew he was of noble birth. He was even related to kings and queens uh, there in England. And uh, he didn't bother showing his nobility. Now, you and I are born again of royalty. Because we are born again of the Father who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But our royal birth is to bring us humility and not arrogance. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about when you come to the 12th chapter of Romans and verse 3. Now let me recap verse 1 and verse 2. Because verse 1 and verse 2, if you'll take those two verses... They become the entire theme of chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, really to the end of the book. So chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, these are powerful words that are here, and they dominate the whole passage to the end of the book of Romans. And um, the first verse is a request. It is not a command. Paul doesn't demand or command that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He requests. If you look there, he says, therefore, I urge you. That is the word parakaleo. I'm encouraging you. I'm urging you. I'm, um, I'm asking. I'm beseeching you. I, I am, uh, this is the thing that I'm really cheering you on to do. And so he says, this is what you should do as a believer in Jesus Christ. You present your body to him as a living sacrifice. Then in verse 2, he comes with two imperatives. So these are commands. And he says this, do not be conformed. That's that's an imperative. When you read, do not be conformed, it's, it's a command that he gives. That is, don't be shaped. Don't be 
molded, don't be uh, twisted into the shape of this culture, the shape of this world. And what he's going to pick up with in verse 3 is he's going to start telling you what that looks like, and it is very opposite of our culture today. Now, we'll get to it. So he says, don't be conformed. Don't be fit down into the mold of this culture. Um, and, but he says, be transformed. Let this metamorphosis take place. Now, when we think of a metamorphosis, we think of a, of a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. That metamorphosis, uh, it is external to an extent, to a degree, but you cannot escape the internal aspect because he follows that uh, with the words, uh, by the renewing of your mind. And the word there, and if you give me a minute, let me just see it in my head, it's anokinos. Anokinos. Uh, Ionos is age. Kinos is one of the words for time. In Greek, chronos, chronological is time. Uh, Konos is time as well, but it's, uh, I'm sorry, kairos. It is kind of time. Kairos is a kind of time. So uh, he is saying that the renewing of your mind is this. Now, let me, let me walk through it because it's very hard to explain. It's eschatological in its nature. That is, what he is saying is relating to uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's saying you think now. The renewing of your mind is that I now no longer think the way this culture thinks, the way Washington thinks. Washington doesn't want to even think like Washington thinks. Uh, they just can't help themselves. Um, it's, it's not thinking the way this culture, this political system thinks. It's thinking with a new kind of thinking and that is the thinking of the kingdom of God. That our thinking matches more what the kingdom of God is like than it does this kingdom that we live in. Now, that's what he's telling them right there. Uh, that's the gist of it. Now, let, let, me, let me just ease you into this because uh, you, you step off into some deep waters when you get here in, in this chapter in Romans, well, the whole of the book of Romans, He's basically wanting you to understand we're a family here. This is a family. Now, I don't know what kind of family you grew up in. Uh, a lot of people grew up in dysfunctional families, families where there were problems. And you, you know for yourself that if there is a dysfunction in some area of a family, then there is a problem in every person in the family. There's problems throughout the whole of the family. Well, Paul is saying, listen, we are God's family, and the dysfunction of the world should be able to look into this family, and they should see that we worship a God who makes us function together as a family. That is, our God has an answer to the massive ego issue of our day. Uh, our God has an answer to the pride issue that eats up our lives of this day. Uh, that our God has an answer to the out-of-control anger 
that people respond with in our day. Do you see what I'm saying? That the world should look in here and they should see, well, that's called God's family there, and look at how they function so well together. Now, he's doing that with the church because the church in Rome were having, and there were multiple churches scattered all over the imperial city. There was not just one church, but there were multiple home churches scattered around, obviously, in the city of Rome. And uh, there were some issues that were there that Paul is going to address right here. And one of those happens to be how we think about ourselves and how we think about each other. Now, verse 1, I've told you, is really my relationship with God. Present your body's a living sacrifice. Then he comes and he says, don't you be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the way, that's me and my relationship with me. And now he's going to kind of bridge that thought with me and how I think about myself and me and how I think about you. Now, let me just stop. Are you guys with me or do I need to start over? <laughs> Have you gotten where we are, where he is in all of this. So he's got this whole thing here about how we relate to one another. That's why he begins verse three with the word for. That conjunction right there is so it's making this transition from our responsibility to God, our responsibility to ourselves, to our responsibility to the way we think, to the way we think about others. And it's going to continue to move out from here. So he's going to deal with us, and he's going to deal with us, and he's going to talk about our personality, and he's going to say this in these coming verses, three through eight, he's going to basically say that the defining personality of the Christian life should be that of humility. Now that is not the culture of our day. That is not what the world says. It is not the way the world thinks. It is, uh, it, is, it is very much the opposite of this culture and this community and our culture, uh, our country, the Western world and the world at large. Humility. And we really struggle. I'm going to tell you in a little bit what I think humility is. It's not what you think. Now, a lot of, uh, I, I, I say this because now I'm a man I, and that's the only that's the way I think. I think like a man. I apologize, but I do. Um, uh, men struggle with this. I, I don't know that ladies struggle with it as much as men do, but men struggle with this whole thing of humility because we equate humility with weakness. And I don't like being weak, and I'm not going to show myself as weak, but that's not what humility is. So just hang on, and we'll get through this, and I'm, I'm going to show you uh, what Paul is saying in all of this. And we'll pick it up in verse 3. And what I want you to see is this. I want you to see that humility should dominate our thinking about ourselves. How do I think about myself? How do I see myself? Um, what goes through my mind when I think about who I really am? Now, um, he says, we've got this renewed mind. I've come to Jesus Christ. I've got this renewed mind. And so he begins, for through the grace given to me, the grace of Jesus Christ given to me at salvation, this is going to affect the way I think. I say to everyone among you, Paul is saying this to the church, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment 
as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, just take that verse and let's walk through that verse. Because what he's saying here is this. He's giving us three things about the way we think about ourselves. Two are explicit in the text. One is implicit. That is, one is implied. The explicit is this. Let me give you the three, and then I'm going to look at the three. Number one, not to, think, not to think too highly of yourself. What is implicit, what is implied by that is the opposite, not to think less of yourself, not to undervalue who you are. And then the third is to have biblical judgment about how you think about yourself. There's a right way and a wrong way to think about yourself. And uh, he's going to use this word phronos, which means frontal, the frontal lobe here. He's going to use it about four times, and he's going to use it in how we are thinking about ourselves. And then I'll get to the second part is really how we demonstrate our thinking about others, how we demonstrate how we think about others. Well, you come to this, what's the wrong way? How is, how is it wrong uh, for me to think more highly of myself? Or how do I do that? This overestimation of self. The word there is huperphronine. Hupo, over, phronos, frontal, mind. And it literally means to think more highly of yourself than you should. I think very... This is exactly what the world tells you to do. It's everything that you see in the media today. It's everything that you watch on television or Netflix or Hulu or Prime or whatever the other stuff are. All of that other stuff that's out there, everything today tells you you have got to think very high. You're, in order to be successful, in order to be number one, in order to be at the top of your game, you have got to think. Everything we watch, everything we read, everything we hear out of this culture gives us this self-aggrandizement. You lift yourself up. You think higher of yourself than you think of anyone else. Now, Paul is saying this to the church at Rome, and he's saying it to the church at Rome because there was a problem with this in the church at Rome or in the churches at Rome. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. It's just right across the page. For me, if you're there in Romans 12, just look over to Romans 14, 1, and listen to what he says. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. That person who is not where you are spiritually, that person who is not where you are in maturity spiritually, he says, don't, don't, uh, accept that one, but don't do it for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. That is, don't run around this church acting as if you've got the spiritual answer to every question that there is and that everybody else is beneath you and you're running up and you're correcting them all the time about their spiritual life. He said, that's not what you do. He says, that's thinking too highly of yourself. Paul's got churches doing that. You're, you're thinking way too highly of yourself. In fact, listen, Paul's going to address this in other epistles. Go with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, listen to what he says in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He says, stop thinking so highly of yourself. Look uh, back, if you would, now to um, 
uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and listen to what Paul says there. And boy, the church at Corinth, was, it was just a mess. Um, it, this is just one of the many ultimate issues that, that were going on there in the church of Corinth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of oneself against the other. He says, you're arrogant in the way you treat other people. You're constantly acting in arrogance, looking down your pious nose, we would say, at somebody else. Verse 7, for who regards you as superior? He says, in all honesty, around the place, who in the world thinks you are so hot? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, I came to this this morning as I was looking over and going over all my message. And I'm just going to tell you, I, I had to stop and just pause and thank God for all the people who poured into my life. I, am, I, don't, I don't have a thing that I didn't receive. I don't know how my mom and dad put me through Furman, but they did it. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. I know they had to do without. I had a mother-in-law who invested in us financially. She provided for us some things that we did not have. I had a best friend that I grew up with. We went fishing. We went hunting. We went camping together. While I was in seminary, that, that guy just saved his money. And when I came home, he bought a, 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 a set of tires, four tires for my car. I was running on ball-headed tires on a two-door Toyota with a baby uh, in the back and one in a, in a car seat. And Debbie sitting in a seat that had a, a soft-sided luggage. She'd get in the car. I'd push the luggage in beside her and slam the door so that it would hold, hold her in. I said, now, honey, that'll protect you from whatever hits this car. So um, uh, he put tires on my car. He bought Debbie a, a washing machine and dryer one year when we were in school so that she wouldn't have to take all the clothes down to the laundry and, uh, and do that. I, 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 listen, my, the first... Church that I pastored, Ray Curlin, Bill Overton, um, were two men who poured into my life, into our marriage, who gave to us. I would not be where I am today had it not been for men like that. Sonny Calhoun, uh, who was at the bank, was good to us, loaned us, you know, was there for us. I used to think of a bunch of men in that church. I'm trying to think of some of the other. I'm so thankful. I am not a man who pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I am a man who owes a debt of gratitude to a ton of people. That's what he says right here. What do you have that you didn't receive? You got what you got because your daddy gave it to you or somebody else gave it to you. And if you did receive it, why do you run around here and act like you did, like you did it all yourself? People that poured into you, people that poured into me. Well, that's what he's saying back here in chapter 12. He's coming and he's saying this, you cannot think so highly of yourself because there are issues with that. It, it is a sign of spiritual immaturity, really. Now he comes and he says, we do that relationally, we do that educationally, we do that vocationally, financially, socially, religiously. I know people that are proud of the church that they're in because they think it makes them look better in the community. Pride over church. 
Any way the human can make it up, the flesh can get sin out of it. I'm telling you. And so he comes and he says this, don't think too highly of yourselves. Now, let me, let me come to this second one right here, and that is do not undervalue yourself, an under-consideration of self. Now, I have found through the years, especially pastoring folks, that a lot of people struggle with low self-esteem, low self-worth, low self-value, no sense that they have any value spiritually in any kind of way. It all comes out of an insecurity built in life. We all do this. How many times have you just, you know, I am nothing, I'm dirt, I'm not even a worm, I'm lower than a worm, you know, uh, is any way I can beat myself up, degrade myself, uh, run myself down, I can do it in that voice in my head. I may not do it in front of all of you, but I will do it in my head with my own voice. And I talk about how no good I am, what a miserable failure I am, how many times I fail, how short I come. And even though I would not open up and tell that to someone else, I I value myself so very little. And it may come out of the fact that you had a parent that undervalued you or talked negative to you or a teacher or a peer or a sibling. And you come to the place, well, I want to tell you, that's not spiritual. That's not spiritually, and I can assure you that downgrading yourself is not what humility means. So I say that to you, and I want to come now, and let me give you the proper view. So he comes in this same verse. We've made it through half the verse, and half my time is gone. And he says this, but to think, the end of verse 3, so as to have sound judgment. Now, that's one part of it. Here's the other part, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So he's saying two things here about the proper way you think about yourself. How do I think about myself? I think about myself so as to have sound judgment. Now you say, well, I don't know that I understand what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying that the word of God has put up boundaries uh, in which you can think of yourself. Uh, The Word of God gives me boundaries on how I'm to think about myself. How do I think about myself? Number one, I'm made in God's image. That's biblical. I'm told that. That gives me value right there. For those of you that feel like you have no value, you're made in the image of God. And, And by the way, let me tell you something. The apes and the monkeys and the giraffes and the elephants are not. You are. You're made in the image of God. Number two, God loves you, and God does love you unconditionally. He puts no conditions on his love for you. Number three, God loves you so much that he sent his only son to go to a cross to pay the price of your sin with his blood. That is, you were purchased by the blood of Christ. You have been bought with a price, and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed, you've been delivered, you've been saved. Every way you can think to say it. And then finally, God has a plan for your life. You're not an accident. You're not here by mistake. 
God knew you from eternity past. And he has a plan for your life. He desires to use you. Maybe your parents did not want you. Maybe other people did not want you. Maybe you had a mate that walked out on you that did not want you. But I want to tell you this, God wants you. And he's got a plan for you. And it is a very good plan for your life. It is a plan that will bring hope to your life. It's a plan that will bring joy to your life. It's a plan that will bring life to your life. And so he says, there are these biblical boundaries around how you are to think about yourself. What I've just given you are good biblical boundaries to think about yourself. And it doesn't lead you to thinking too highly of yourself. The Word of God also talks about the fact that we need wisdom. And if we need wisdom, we can go to God who will give it to us. So I don't think so highly of myself that I think, hey, I know it all. I don't. I am dependent on God's wisdom in my life. The second thing that he says to you is this. God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now let me just jump through all the theological hoops here and tell you what he's saying in that is this. He is saying that um, there is a standard uh, of um, of behavior, of thought about yourself, and that is operated by the faith that God has given you. You have faith because it is a gift from God. Now, God gives you faith, but you have to operate that faith. And um, he comes in this, and what he's saying is that uh, in, in faith, when I look at my life that God has given me faith, it's how I operate that faith uh, how, do, how do I operate in faith? Do I think and trust and put my faith in God at greater and greater levels? Now, now, hang on to this, because you see, some of us don't operate at a faith level. We'll just say at about 8%. About 8% of the time, we would operate at a faith level, and it's really low, and it's, it's not anything that would you know, ring any bells or, or, or ring any chimes. And then there are others of us that operate at a, let's say, a 45% level of faith. That is, I'm trusting God for more in my life. I'm trusting God for more things. I'm leaning on God to direct me and my life and my family and my work and all of these things. And that faith is building, and I'm hoping next year is going to be a little higher than that. But now listen to what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying those of us who operate at a higher level of faith should have a deeper level of humility. Did you get all of that? That if I am operating at a higher standard, by the way, who's the standard? Jesus Christ. And I can tell you, none of you are operating at that level. None of us are. None of us are, but we're, we're striving, and the higher I operate in a level of faith, the deeper my humility should be. Humility should dominate the way we think about ourselves. You may be great, but keep it to yourself. Honestly, the Word of God says this, you know, let, let another praise you and not you yourself. 
Now, let me get to the second part of this, and the second part of this deals with the humility that demonstrates our relationship toward others. My humility should be seen in how I relate to you. Now, finished up verse 3, let's go to verse 4. For just as we have many members, talking about the church, in one body, we're here in this one body, all members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now you just have to pick up this one, 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 many, 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 you know. He's he's making this play on the words here that we're one body. We are one in Christ, uh, that we are members one of another, but that there are many of us and that there are many in this body, and that there are many gifts in the many members of this body. And so he's going to turn, and I could look through these gifts, but I don't have time to do them, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us. You exercise it in the proportion of the grace that has been given to you. That is, God has given all of us gifts And uh, how we relate to one another is often based on those gifts. Now, you've been placed into this body, which is one. He talks about the unity that is here and the diversity that is here. We are one in Christ. We have one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, We are all together in one. And yet, we all have different abilities, different personalities, different gifts, And even if we have a very similar gift, it operates in a very different way or we operate it out of our own unique personality and not out of the personality of someone else. That's why I tell young preachers when I preach to preachers, and I'm going to be preaching to preachers tonight and tomorrow, when I I talk to them and I preach to them and I share with them and I say, look, be who you are. God saved you. Don't be your favorite preacher's personality. Be you. It takes 500 sermons for a preacher to find his own voice, by the way. 500. 500. Anyhow, he comes and he says, listen, we've all got different gifts. We function in the church in different ways. And how often does that make us upset with other people in the body of Christ? And it shouldn't. He comes and he says this, this is one of the things that should bind us together. That if you have, just listen to what he says as he goes, if you have service, if you have the gift of exhortation, if you have the gift of liberality, and I pray that you do, um, if you have the gift of diligence, if you have the gift of mercy, if you have all of these, all of these, he's just giving you a smattering of gifts here, and he says, we've all got these various gifts. And yet, in the church, when we operate in our giftedness, somebody somewhere gets irritated at us. Well, like I feel like a chicken up here. Yes, 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 yes. And, and it shouldn't be that way. We should be humble to find that everybody else in the body of Christ is gifted in a certain area. And usually more than one area. It should be humbling to us. It should be amazing to us that our God does this. Several years ago, there was an article that came out in a school newspaper up in Oregon, out of uh, Springfield, Oregon. And I want you just to, if you listen to it, you begin to catch where I'm going with this. Once upon a time, the animals decided they should do something meaningful to meet the problems of the new world. 
So they organized a school. They adopted an activity curriculum of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. And to make it easier to administer the the curriculum, all the animals took all of the subjects. Every animal took every subject. And uh, all of the curriculum, running, climbing, swimming, flying. The duck was excellent in swimming. In fact, the duck was better than the instructor. But he made only a passing grade in flying and a poor grade in running. So he was so slow in running that he had to drop swimming, stay after school to practice running. This caused his web feet to be badly worn so that he became only average in swimming. The rabbit. The rabbit started off at the top of his class in running, but he developed a nervous twitch in his leg muscles because so much of his practice was taking up in swimming lessons. Do you you see where this is going? That's exactly what's happening in the church. It happens to you. You're off in an area where you really are not in the giftedness of your area and you're striving and striving and striving and you're frustrating yourself and you're frustrating others and it's not the gift that God has given you. But you're trying to do it because you like that gift, you like that area, you like doing that. But it's really not the area of where God has gifted you or called you. God did not make ducks to run. He did not make rabbits to swim, although they can do you know, that. They just don't do it like they do what they were created to do. Let me tell you, folks, this is not rocket science. This this really is just plain biblical sense right here, is to figure out that God has gifted you for certain things. And then you say, well, okay, I'm gifted in this area, but this person is gifted in the same area, but you don't always do it alike. Well, they've got to do it like me because I'm gifted in that. They do not. They don't have to do it like you. God gave them their own person. We don't want a clone of you running around here. God gave them the same gift and the same, but he gives it in different proportions through different personalities. So that in all of this, we just sit around and we compare ourselves to somebody else who has maybe the same gift. By the way, let me, let me tell you something. Let me, let me do this. This is on my mind, and I can do it because it's early service, and the Cowboys won't be on until much later. So let me just show you. I'm preaching tonight out of Acts chapter 15. You're going to see this in a, in a really an interesting way in Barnabas and Paul. Now, who was more spiritual, Barnabas or Paul? We can't answer that but they get sideways with each other. They've both been on the mission trip. They both have been uh, discipling believers at Antioch. They both go off and have this great uh, ministry on this first mission trip, and they both go down to Jerusalem to get the word uh, from uh, James and the other brethren down there, and they come back, and now Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of God. Let's go back to the churches we started. And in chapter 15, verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them, and Paul kept insisting they should not take him along um, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work, and there occurred a sharp disagreement. They were hot. 
Now, you've got two godly men. It's like having George Beverly Shea and Billy Graham, and they come to a disagreement about the music in the, in the, in the crusade that night. And there's a sharp disagreement between the two. I mean, you got Barnabas and you got Paul. Can I show you something here I hope will help you? If you look at Barnabas, Barnabas was always relating to the individual. Always. He went off and he got Saul. When everybody was terrified of Saul, who becomes Paul, by the way, and he pours into Saul and he stands up for Saul and he gives Saul a task to do. Come down here to Antioch and help me disciple these Christians here. And so Saul comes down there and he's under Barnabas and then the Holy Spirit says, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul to go on this mission trip. They go off and midways of the mission trip, now Saul becomes Paul and he becomes the clear leader. That didn't even upset him. Barnabas didn't care. It mattered to him. Here's Paul now. Now, Paul was always interested in the mission, the bigger picture, the mission, founding the church, getting to the next place. Barnabas was always interested in the individual. Now, who's right? They're both right. They're both right. The amazing miracle of God, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And God will bring out of this not one mission trip, but two. And Barnabas will take Mark and will pour into that young man and pour into him and pour into him and pour into him until Mark gets up with Peter, and Mark begins to write down all the preaching of Peter, and we call it the gospel of Mark. And Paul gets Silas, and he goes off back to these churches, and he finds a young guy in a place where he had been stoned before, and he understands this boy's got a call on his life, and his name is Timothy. And so out of that, they use the same gift that God gave them, and yet in different proportions, and Barnabas continues to pour into the individual, and Paul continues to set out the big agenda, the next mission, the next church plant. God expects us to get along. He wants us to work together and understand that even though we might have the same gift, there's differences. But now this is what kills the work of the church. Comparison. I'm always comparing myself to somebody else. I'm always comparing myself to this church or to that pastor or to this professor or to this somebody over here. I'm always comparing myself to this person in their Sunday school class or life group, to this person in, in that life group teacher, and to these people over here when they're doing this and when they're serving that and when they're working in this. And comparison, I tell you, will cause the body to function in a dysfunctional way. That's why you don't ever compare your kids. Let me give you a little tip on that. Go back and read the story of Jacob and Joseph and the other poor brothers that were there. And look at the mess that that brings up. Don't ever compare your children to one another. 
Stop comparing yourself to others because comparisons ultimately fill you with frustration and hopelessness and anger and bitterness. Steve Farrar was a good friend of mine. He died a number of years ago. He was a great writer, wrote prolifically, did a lot of men's conferences. I had him in to speak at the pastor's conference a number of times. And uh, Steve told the story of leaving California and moving to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And he said, when I was in California, he said, we had zero lot lines. I mean, you built a house right on top of the house beside you. No yard, hardly at all. But he said, when I moved to Little Rock, he said, I had an entire acre for a backyard. And he said, we, we you know, had the house painted before we moved in. He said, we moved in in August. And he said, I had to get in the backyard and cut that acre of grass. He said, it was 100 degrees that day in um, Little Rock, 80% humidity. He said, but he cut it. You know, got all of that cut, and he walked up on the deck, and he got him a glass of tea, and he got a magazine, and he sat down, and he said, you know what, this, this is just the life now. He looked at the house. It looked so good, fresh paint on the outside. He looked at all that very green grass that had been watered, now freshly cut, manicured. It was beautiful. He said he sat down in the chair, he opened the magazine, and he started reading an article about a couple who had renovated their home. And they started in the kitchen where they removed all the Formica countertops, and they put in tile and granite countertops and, and tile backsplash, all of that. Then they took the doors off the cabinets, refinished the cabinets, put up French doors with glass in the cabinets. Then they went over to the pantry, and they put in these, these uh, revolving pantry shelves that you could just spin those shelves, spin the shelves, and you've got all of this you know, revolving pantry there. Steve Farrar said he finished his tea. He got up and he walked in the house and he looked down at his Formica countertops and he looked up at the cabinet doors. No glass, no French doors on the counter. He walked over to the pantry and there was nothing but just some shelves there, nothing revolving, nothing moving, nothing fancy, nothing new about it. And he says, why do we have to live in this rat trap? He said he, he got a glass of tea and he walked back out on the deck that he had enjoyed uh, just earlier. And he looked at it and he said, I've seen piles of firewood that look better in this deck. <laughs> they had a deck now. They showed in there. It just fit the contour of the yard. Steps off this direction. Steps off that direction. Moved up in this direction. Little, you know, a gazebo, a pagoda over here on this. And he said he looked at that deck and he said, seven minutes ago I was happy. He said, but now I am as disgusted as I can be. You know, I had a builder tell me that this week in Florida. Had a builder, one of the finest home builders in North Florida told me, he says, I'm, I'm out of it. I'm not doing it anymore. He said, I can't do it because he says, every time we get a set of plans drawn and done, he says, here comes the homeowner back up saying, look at this magazine. Look, I don't want to do it that way. I want this now. And he said, the next day they come back and they want to do it now this way. They've seen another magazine and they want to do it this way, that way. Listen, let me tell you something. Comparisons will make your life miserable. I'm giving you a good word this morning. Y'all just sitting there looking at me. I am telling you, if, if you want to be happier in your life, do what the word of God says. You've got one person to please. That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ. Let's stand. 
Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.